You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Well, if you weren't quite here, right at the very beginning, just introduce myself again. My name's Alan. I'm um, one of the eldership team here at City Church. Uh, it's great to have you with us today. And uh, normally I like to meander my way into sermons a little bit, but the text for today is incredibly rich. Uh, so we're going to get to it right from the start. So if you do have uh, a Bible, um, those you know, unique paper things that flap open, that's, that's the Bible, right? If you've got one of those, that's great. Or if you've got a device with the scriptures on it, you might want to open it up and turn to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 7 to 9 in a moment, uh, and then... Uh, going to work our way through this wonderful rich passage today. Um, I keep on trying to speed things up a little bit but the scripture just won't let you. <laughs> it's good. It's good to allow the pace of your preaching to be dictated for you by scripture. Um, then, you, then you know that you're not just kind of making up stuff as you go along. So anyway I'm starting to meander. So let's get to uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verses 7 to 9. I'm using the NRSV translation for this morning's sermon. Paul writes, yet whatever gain I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through the faith of Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. What has happened to Paul? It certainly seems obvious from reading these words that something dramatic has happened to this man, our author, Paul. Something has happened to Paul that what we might even like to say a heart level. So much so that the things that he previously prized, and if you remember last week we read the verses before this where Paul talks about his birthright and status as a Jew, his religious performance and his sense of being morally impeccable on the basis of those things. Paul thinks that all of that has now become rubbish. And in fact, the Greek word for rubbish is skubala, which literally means crap, excrement. Some Christians are far too pious to say the word, but it's, there it is in Holy Scripture. So what is it that has happened to him? Perhaps we could pinch the words of an 18th, 19th century Scottish preacher called Thomas Chalmers. Perhaps Paul has experienced the expulsive power of a new affection. So in other words, it's not just that Paul has added Jesus to all of his best bits and shaken it around a little bit and now the sum of it is a little bit better than it was before or Paul has maybe brought Jesus into his life and Jesus has slowly risen to the top so that Jesus happens to be better than everything else. Now, Paul regards everything that was a plus for him as a minus now because the value of Jesus has displaced all other rival affections in his heart. Everything 
is a loss for Paul now because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We wonderfully sang about it this morning. If you are younger than me, you might not know that song. It's Graham Kendrick, classic, absolutely wonderful song. Expresses something of these words from Philippians 3. Paul's being gripped by the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And these words are very familiar. If you have been a Christian for any amount of time, Christ Jesus my Lord, it trips off the tongue. Deceptively simple. Masking remarkable depths in some senses. So we need to pay careful attention to some details in this phrase. What does it mean to speak about Christ Jesus my Lord? Well, Christ Jesus my Lord literally means King Jesus my Lord. Because the word Christ is the Greek word Christos. And Christos is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. And in the Hebrew Bibles, an anointed one is a king or a prophet, someone who's been set apart by God. And so we are talking about King Jesus. Paul says the surpassing value of knowing King Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, my Lord. The Greek word for Lord is kurios. And it can just mean master. So it wouldn't be inconceivable to imagine that Paul says the surpassing value of knowing King Jesus, my master. Well, of course that works, doesn't it? The king is in a place of authority and he is the master over Paul. But kurios also translates the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the word that Jews use to speak about God. And so to speak about knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, could easily be translated as King Jesus, my God. There's some depth in this text. We've already seen, actually, in this series on Philippians, if you can remember back, which you may not be able to, because it seems a long time ago now, but that's maybe my aging brain, Pete Rayner delivered a wonderful sermon on Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, the great Christ hymn in Philippians. We've seen in that hymn, Paul using the words Christ Jesus and Lord when he describes how God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand, exalting him highly, giving him the name that is above every other name. Here we go. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, Paul is talking about this one who was dead and God raised up and now highly exalted so that in the age to come, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. You know, it's almost impossible to summarize or to to sum up somehow the riches and the depths, the nuances that are going on in a text like this, in a phrase like Jesus Christ and Lord. But suffice to say, Paul is talking about this person Jesus, the human Jesus whom we meet in the pages of the gospel. And he is making the most scandalous, outrageous claim that this human Jesus is now reigning 
exalted as the fully human and divine king to whom universal allegiance should be given in the coming age. Is that what has gripped Paul's heart so that he can say, everything is rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? Yeah, it is, absolutely. But there's also some other details that we need to consider. Paul says that nothing counts compared to this surpassing value of knowing Christ, but he also talks about regarding all as loss. In fact, in chapter three, the verses that we read, twice Paul talks about regarding things as loss. He regards the advantages of his previous life as a thoroughbred and deeply committed and pious Jew as lost because of Jesus, and he regards everything that was a plus, a gain for him, as loss compared to the value of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord. Now think, we've just seen Philippians 2 describe the human Jesus as exalted, sharing the divine name and authority, the God-man Jesus, now reigning over everything and into the future reigning over all things. But Philippians 2 also tells us something about who Jesus was before, if you like, what theologians call the pre-existence of the Son of God. Paul describes it like this. He talks about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. You must try and get out of your head the idea that in eternity past, there was a a 30-something-year-old Jewish chap rumbling around in celestial palaces. There wasn't. At a moment in human history, the eternal word, the eternal Son of God, who was with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past, took on flesh and became known as the man Jesus. Okay? But here's the most remarkable thing. This is what contributes to what undid Paul, to what made him cause, count everything as rubbish, as crap, and flush it down the loo, metaphorically speaking, in comparison to knowing Jesus. Not only is he the highly exalted God-man who is reigning now and in the future, He's also the eternal God who did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, as something to be used for his own advantage. Paul has reflected on the reality of God's self-revelation in Christ Jesus, and he has realized and seen by the grace of God that this is what God is like, and it's undone him to the extent that all the things he could think of, all that he could possibly regard as somehow bolstering him, his sense of self and worth and piousness and all the rest of it is rubbish because I've seen the surpassing beauty. This is what God is like? Wow. He's been utterly, utterly undone by God's self-revelation. But God reveals God's self not only in the moment of transcendent glory, 
but in his not counting or regarding equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbling himself. I mean, think it through. The eternal son humbles himself and takes on flesh, takes on the form of a man. As a man, he humbles himself and becomes a servant. As a servant, he humbles himself and becomes obedient to death, death on a cross, the most shameful kind of death. Paul thinks this reveals God. It's not just that bit, the exalted bit. The whole thing reveals God. Jesus reveals God. And Paul thought Jesus was a false messiah at one point. He thought he was a sham, a fake. But when God chose to reveal God's self to Paul in the person of Jesus, it undid him. It changed everything for him. But it's important to think a little bit about how and why it changed everything for Paul. Perhaps we could talk about it like this. Paul, the perfect Jew? Paul was a Pharisee, right? A Pharisee was a particular party of Jews. They weren't an official ruling party. They were just like a a particularly hardcore set of pious Jews who had a particular strict interpretation of the law of Moses, the Torah, and they were particularly keen on trying to, if you like, force God's hand. They, they thought that God's reign was going to break in and that God would send a king who would defeat their enemies and who would reestablish the Jewish people in their land, ushering in a new age. It's this whole kind of wonderful thing that they were expecting. They thought that they could somehow chivy God on, if you like, by being super, super righteous. That if we can deal with our sins as a people, if we can become really on top of everything and really, really pious, then maybe God will go, oh, wow, look at those wonderful pious people. I'll send the king now. You know, that kind of idea. You know, maybe, maybe it's not unfeasible to think that Paul's rallying cry as a Pharisee could have been, purify yourselves, people. Become more like me. Do you think that God will vindicate the ungodly and the impure when he comes in his kingdom and his power? Of course not. He's going to vindicate the righteous and the pious and those who are pure in heart and in lineage. That might have been Paul's rallying cry or something like that, a little bit of artistic license. Now, I know that you probably don't think much about the world of first century Judaism, and fair play to you, because there are other things to think about, and you know, you can leave it up to people like me to think about first century Judaism for you. You're welcome, okay? But you might not even think about religion. Perhaps you wouldn't even think of yourself as religious. Maybe you're here, perhaps you're a student, you found yourself in a house full of Christians. Damn, never gonna stop being badgered forever. Three years of this, oh no, I'll go along on the first Sunday and they invite me to church and maybe, you know, maybe they'll be over it and we can forget about it all. Well, worse luck, you've come to the church with the, the shouty preacher. Uh, maybe you're not really into religion, Christianity. Let me, let me try and translate this kind of idea, what Paul thought, the sort of view he had as a Pharisee what he was expecting and hoping for. Let me try and put that into a more contemporary idiom for you, in case you're thinking, well, what's first century Judaism got to to do with me? Well, it's this, isn't it? It's virtue signaling. Paul is the first century equivalent of the king of virtue signalers. 
<laughs> okay, okay, what's virtue signaling? You might not know what virtue signaling is. Here's a humorous example of what virtue signaling is. I like it. The more you look at it, the funnier it gets. Four beautiful, perfect young people, two couples perhaps, being ever so self-congratulatory about their moral life. Look at my shirt made from plastic. Ching. Cheersing one another with their very, very designer-looking glasses and looking all kind of pious and congratulatory of each other. That's virtue signaling in a funny sort of way. Let me give you a few sort of headlines of this. Virtue signaling is about showing off your moral superiority. It's about trying to show yourself as being superior against those whose morality is questionable from a particular perspective, normally a very contemporary Western liberal perspective. Virtue signaling implicitly and somewhat ironically makes value judgments about who counts as an insider and who should remain outside and why. Virtue signaling becomes a way of expressing what I would call a pseudo-religious zeal for moral causes by means of outrage and hyperbole normally expressed and articulated by means of social media. Who hasn't seen that? Virtue signaling uses fear to manage contradictory voices by threat of exposure. But ironically, it's subject to the same fear of being exposed. Virtue signaling is not about having certain beliefs. It's all about using those beliefs to demonstrate that you are morally superior or perhaps morally up-to-date, which often translates into superior, or morally above others. I'm not trying to set up a straw man, and I'm being very careful to steer clear of specific issues. Because let's be honest, there are some really, really important issues that it's really important to hold strong moral convictions about, but that is not a justification for being a virtue signaler. Paul held some really strong, good, clear views about God. But he thought that by bam, making much of them, he was somehow superior. It became pridefulness. It became self-righteousness. And that's the problem with virtue signaling that it's always, always, always a form of self-righteousness. Christians can be virtue signalers. They can possibly be the worst virtue signalers by making much of certain issues. And it's really hard because actually there are things that Christians believe and that they proclaim and they talk about and they make much about. The thing is, Christians, if, they, if they're proclaiming in a right way, they're not proclaiming their own righteousness. They're proclaiming somebody else. They're not pointing to themselves and saying, look how righteous I am. They're pointing to Jesus and saying, look at the salvation of God. They're not pointing to their own efforts and their own plastic shirt and whole food bag. They're pointing to the cross. Here's where the righteousness of God is displayed. And that's what makes 
this chapter in Philippians remarkable because Paul is unequivocal about abandoning his Torah-based self-righteousness, his first-century virtue signaling that marked his life in the past. And he's utterly committed now to a gifted righteousness that is based on faith in Jesus. We need to think a little bit about righteousness. It's another one of those Bible words that trips off the tongue, pops up in prayers because it's a very Christian-y, religious-y sort of word. But like most biblical words, there are just, there's just a range of meanings and the, the word itself can sort of sum up a whole load of things. And so I wanna give you a few of the things that matter in terms of thinking about what righteousness is. What is Paul thinking about? When he talks about righteousness in Philippians 3, what has he got in mind? Well, we can't get into Paul's mind. That's impossible. But we can make some educated guesses based on Scripture and the world of first century Judaism. Again, you're very welcome. So let's think about some of these things. Righteousness in Paul's mind can be the moral character of God. God is righteous. He's perfect, he's morally impeccable. I mean, I know that if you're not a Christian, if you're a slightly aggressive atheist, you might find that a slightly, that's a moot point to you, isn't it? But from a Christian biblical perspective, the righteousness of God can mean his impeccable, impeachable moral character. He is perfect in every way. Righteous, though, can also refer to the status of a believer. Abraham, the sort of prototype believer, He believed God, God credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham was in right relationship with God because he believed God. Righteousness, it's the status of a believer. But it can also and importantly be this, the loyalty of God to his covenant, righteousness. It kind of sums up the idea, if you know the Old Testament a bit, of the steadfast love of God. God's steadfast love, his righteousness, it's his unswerving commitment to keep his promises to Abraham, to his people. And Paul thinks that all of these things come together in Jesus Christ. All these different things, the character of God, the status of a believer, and the loyalty of God to his covenant, all cohere in Jesus. And he describes that in two closely related ways. The first of them is this, the faith of Christ. You might have noticed, and those of you who are familiar with Philippians 3 and other translations of the Bible might have gone, huh? When we read through Philippians 3, that said, The faith of Christ. I thought the whole Christian thing was faith in Christ. Uh Well spotted if you did. If you didn't, now you know. And you've got an endless ream of books and articles to read up about it. The faith of Christ. It's because in Greek it's a genitive, it's possessive. It's the faith of Christ. But it's often translated as in. Partly because Bible translations are always made with theology in the background. 
And, and so it seems more convenient to say the faith in Christ because ever since Martin Luther shook things up in the 16th century, we tend to think about righteousness being by faith in Christ. But what Paul says is the faith of Christ. Well, why on earth is that important? Why does it matter? Why is that so significant that Paul would say it and I would make such a big deal of it this morning? Well, well it's this. Paul understands that Jesus Christ is a representative Israel. He stands for the people of God. He is the quintessential Jew. If Paul thought he was the perfect Jew, when he met Jesus, he realized, oh my goodness, I was so wrong. It's him, Jesus. He represents the whole people of God. So in other words, what Jesus undergoes in his life and his death and his resurrection, what Jesus says, how he acts, how he is before God and before men, is representative of the ideal, perfect Israel. Jesus in himself sums up all that Israel, the people of God, are supposed to be. He is the righteous Israel, the perfect Israel, loyal to God, righteous, committed, pious, but shows off something else too. Because it's not just that he gathers up all of who Israel is. He also sums up all that God is. So in Jesus you find God's loyalty and Israel's answer all brought together so that in the man Christ Jesus, God's ways and human response hold together. So no wonder Paul says that he wants to know Christ Jesus his Lord and have a righteousness that's not his own, that's based on law, it's not legalistic, it's not self-righteous, but it's based on the faith of Jesus. Because if Jesus has summed all of that up, then it's pointless trying to accomplish the same thing all over again yourself when you are not the God-man. He sees and he understands and he knows it's all about the faith or the faithfulness of Jesus. In Jesus, God has given a faithful Israel. He's gifted a righteous people and he has given himself to bring all of his purposes for himself and for his people together. Jesus is king and Lord and people of Israel wrapped in one person who is now ascended and reigning. It's kind of shorthand for the whole of Paul's previous hopes, longings, dreams, expectations. Do you know, it makes me wonder when we bump up against or when we, you know, when we exercise virtue signaling in some way, do we realize that the very things that we are signaling the things that we're hoping for, the things that we want to be true, that, we're maybe, that maybe underlie what we're expressing, they're all actually fulfilled in Jesus. They're all brought to a climax and a completion in Jesus. We want a better world, we want more equality, we want more freedom, we want more of this, more of that. And we think that we can accomplish that by ourselves, under our own steam, and particularly by being a keyboard warrior, and telling everybody about how special and how virtuous we are. But it's all hopeless 
The causes aren't hopeless, don't get me wrong. But you need to understand something. They all point to Christ, actually. They all point to Jesus as the one who has opened a way for the fulfillment of all the deepest longings of contemporary Western liberals and anybody else. Equality, freedom, difference, embrace rather than exclusion. In Christ, they are all realities. And in the age to come when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, it will be Jesus, not human righteousness, not human virtue that creates that kind of a world and that kind of a life. If you, if you think that you can add your own righteousness to that of Christ's and accomplish something that God in Christ has already accomplished, you're making yourself out to be an unbeliever rather than a believer. And this should serve as a bit of a warning for us as Christians because I think sometimes what we, we tend to think that, that Jesus is forgiveness of my sins so I can go to heaven and we fail to see the big picture, all-encompassing, universal climax of a massive story that God in Christ has done. And so we think about my personal forgiveness and my personal destiny and then we rail about contemporary issues. But we must be careful. We must tread carefully because we can be almost as unbelievers by making more of those things than by making as much as we can about how Jesus is the answer to the deepest longings of those issues. Okay? Don't become an unbeliever in your passion for justice, for the, economy, for the, for the, uh, the environment, don't become an unbeliever by thinking that human righteousness can accomplish what God in Christ alone can accomplish. If I've done my job halfway all right this morning, then hopefully I will have made the sense of who Jesus is and how he is the fullness and the richness of all God's purposes somehow compelling for you. Hopefully it will have warmed your heart, quenched your thirst somehow, strengthened and helped you. But I do need to talk about this. If that was the righteousness in terms of righteousness of loyalty and God's purposes and all the rest of it, Paul says that this righteousness is based on faith. It's the righteousness of God that is based on faith, and that means that it's a righteousness that you receive, it's gifted. Faith is a gift in Paul's world, in his language, in his thoughts. It's not an accomplishment, it's not something that you drive yourself, it's something that you receive. And so all of this wonder and beauty and mind-blowing and world-upside-down kind of stuff that Paul thinks that God has done is received by faith in Christ. So it's the faith of Christ and the way that you get to enjoy the inside goodness of that faith of Christ is putting your faith in Christ. 
Is that where your faith is this morning? If you believed in Christ, Paul didn't add Jesus to everything else and hope that it worked out as a plus. He flushed his righteousness down the toilet in order to gain the faith of Christ by faith in Christ. And it surpassed everything else in value. It was better than anything else he could possibly have hoped for or mustered himself. This faith gift allows us to answer to the righteousness that comes through the faithfulness of Christ. In fact, in another letter of Paul's, he says that faith is obedience, the obedience of faith. It's not that faith is a work, therefore, that if I'm going to be obedient, I need to make sure that I believe. No, he means that just believe in God. Believe in God, that's the way that you do it. How do, how do I go about the Christian life? I, 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 try, I put my hand up in a meeting and prayed a prayer. Well, now, will you believe God? You know, maybe we could say you hold your nerve. You keep believing him. You trust him. <laughs> you don't freak out and try and fix it all yourself. You, you keep believing him. How do you relate to God on an ongoing basis, on a day-to-day basis? Oh, well, surely it's a little bit of works. No, the obedience of faith. He's my righteousness. I've got none of my own. None. Zero. Nada. Not a shred. I am naked and poor in terms of righteousness before God on my own. But I believe him. He's my righteousness. He alone. I believe you. Jesus, it's all going pear-shaped in my life at the moment. I don't understand. If I could just be more pious, maybe you would bless me. That's disobedience. Disobedience. You think you can fix it yourself. Believe him. Jesus, I don't understand. I believe you. I believe you. I believe you. You're righteous for me, and it will never fail. You're going to keep your promises because you are the faithfulness of God. You see? The righteousness of God based on faith. To try and do it yourself is to deny God. You don't want to be in that place. You can be in that place as a Christian. Well, of course, I believe in God. Don't you spend your whole life virtue signaling or trying to be religious? Stop. Believe him. Put your trust in him. It's simple, but it's also profound. Shallow enough for an infant to paddle in, deep enough for an elephant to swim. Believe him. Now, if you really want to do something, if you are compelled, if you are the kind of person who just feels like, I, I must do something, which there are some people, and some are like, oh, that's really good, I'll do nothing. Um, both are slightly tenuous positions, by the way, but you know, nevertheless, if you really want to do something, well, then worship. So long as you don't see worship as a work, <laughs> worship, enter into it, celebrate, rejoice your little cotton socks off, or whatever else it is that you happen to wear. And then listen to this sermon again, if you dare, and 
Meditate on Philippians 3 and meditate on Philippians 2, 5 to 11, the Christ hymn. Think about who Jesus is. Think about the riches of it. Think about why Paul could flush his righteousness down the loo like a massive stinking turd and go, bye, Jesus. Reflect on it and let it grip your heart and your soul. Let it become the expulsive power of a new affection. If you need to renounce anything, and make no mistake, Paul renounces things. Bye-bye, down the U-bend, see ya. If you need to renounce things, well, renounce every shred of virtue signaling you can think of, because it is just self-righteousness. And then wash your hands, and then raise them up, and say, thank you, Jesus. I believe you. You are sufficient. And the value of knowing you surpasses everything. Let's close our eyes and pray. Lord, here we are before you. These odds and sods that you've gathered from all over. These bits and pieces of weak little men and women trying to make themselves seem important and valuable and you have placed remarkable value on us. And you have revealed yourself to us in your Son, and you've revealed a way of being to us that is not about signaling our wonderful virtue and morality, but is faith in the faithfulness of God in Jesus. And Lord, we very, very much want to have you in our hearts in all your expulsive power, that our affections would be gripped by you, that our minds would be filled with you, that our hearts would overflow with you. Save us, please, Lord, from the disobedience of religion, and keep us in the obedience of faith. Teach us what that looks like in our everyday lives, when we're using social media, when we're amongst groups of friends on campus. And Lord, have mercy this morning on everyone sitting, wondering, am I a believer? Can I dare? Do I, do I put my trust? Can I, can I dare to believe in this crazy secular age that what that guy has just said might be true, that Jesus is indeed Lord? that there is one God and that he is making all things new and that I don't need to fight to prove anything or to make anything in my own image or whatever. Lord, in your mercy, call that young man, that young woman, that middle-aged man or woman to yourself. Draw them to you. Reveal your son in them that they might find hope and joy and the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, their Lord. Amen. We're going to end by breaking bread, uh, as we do. The musicians are going to sing a song for us, and once you've got bread and wine, you can join in singing as well. And I want to encourage you to, to do this by faith to come to this table and to eat and drink Jesus by faith. 
to receive him into yourself again by faith. Something outside of you that comes to you and does good to you and rescues you. Jesus himself. The bread and the juice are not Jesus, but he comes to you as you eat and drink by faith and receive his life and his death and his resurrection by faith. So let's worship, let's eat and drink, let's celebrate again this surpassing value, this righteousness of God by faith.